0: Hey, Gestalt Education Nation. Uh, New sponsor alert, new sponsor alert. Today, we're excited to announce uh, Dynamic Disc Designs and Jerome Fryer. Uh, We have an awesome discount code for you. Just use the code GESTALT uh, to get a little bit of money off on the the Dynamic Disc Designs. They're the the most realistic anatomical discs that we've ever seen. If you caught our our episode with uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, you saw an entire shelf full of them. Everything from cavitation instruction to uh, uh, disc dysfunction to SI joint dysfunction, all sorts of amazing stuff. Joint movement, vertebral movement. Absolutely. So uh, go to Dynamic Disc Designs, uh, use the code GESTALT. As always, you can use the code gestalt on core 360 belt to get a, a little discount on the belts there we love to use that for biofeedback for teaching respiration intra-abdominal pressure and how the, the abdominal wall should be working during function uh, and then the last one use the code gestalt education 10 those will all be in the description in the podcast gestalt education 10 at human locomotion.com uh, to get off uh, some money off of all of his awesome gadgets and tools and uh, rehab uh, materials what's your
1: favorite brett He's got a trunk full, but I think, you know, integrating the Topro in, I think, has been a game changer for us here at the office, so I think that would be my pick. Beautiful.
0: All right, guys, don't forget, use the code Gestalt, Gestalt Education 10, uh, visit the show notes, and you'll be uh, hooked up. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Today we're back on Home Turf, Brett. Uh, another solo episode. I'm calling them a solo episode, it's just you and me. But uh, today we're gonna talk about another one of your passion projects. So the first time we the last time we had a little solo, we talked about the TMJ and uh TMJ dysfunction and things like that, which is I I, am gonna say it's probably that was probably your first love of uh of maybe musculoskeletal. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And then the second one is is I was gonna say abdominal wall, but uh so today we're gonna talk about the abdominal wall. We're going to talk about abdominal wall dysfunction. We're going to talk about misconceptions. We're going to maybe uh, you know stir the pot a little bit and uh, get people a little riled up, which is kind of fun. Uh, but we're going to kind of go. You know, you you tell this great history at all of your intro DNS courses, and you've been on some big stages with this topic of telling the history of the abdominal wall. Telling you know everybody's probably right. It's just like we're coming at it from a different angle, right? Mm-hmm. So before we get into that, I gotta I gotta give a little promo we got some great courses coming up this summer, so uh, we're actually, by the time this comes out, we'll be headed to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina for a DNS Exercise 1. So we're excited about that to be at uh, Lindsay Muma's office. She's going to make us do a cold plunge, and so I'm going to guess that that'll, oh, be on, that that'll be on video, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we're also in July, the end of July, we're going to uh, New Jersey, the first time. You have been to the East Coast in a while. It's been a while. So uh, we're kind of starting that East Coast swing with our, our good friend Rob Minlianica uh, up in New Jersey. That's uh, July 22nd and 23rd. That's an exercise one. And then uh, we come back home in September for the TMJ Dysfunction course, which is again, if you missed the podcast two weeks ago, uh, you should definitely check that out. Uh, And then you also, uh, we're going in October, we have another exercise one in uh, Northern uh, Alabama. So that'll be a a great time. And then of course, DNSC in December. But the big one, the one that we're all looking forward to is the first weekend in November, the Neurodynamics World Congress. It's the first time ever. Uh, You are going to going to be talking about what we're talking about today, abdominal wall and DNS. Uh, we're going to have Michael Shacklock. Uh, talking about all things neurodynamics and then uh, every, the whole weekend is basically geared around neurodynamics and the other players involved with it how is ART used uh, to, to affect the nervous system uh, specifically the peripheral nervous system uh, Antonio Stecco the fashion manipulation crowd uh, Annie O'Connor is going to talk about all things pain mechanisms and also some neurodynamics stuff uh, you, David, Seaman. David Seaman is going to talk about nutrition and uh, the nervous system Jeffrey so, Bove. Uh, Jeffrey Bove is going to talk about the research uh we we, it's just going to be a great weekend yeah Yeah. bill morgan the hits just keep on coming so uh anyway stay tuned for that uh registration page should be coming up pretty soon uh that's going to be a great weekend really looking forward to it so brett let's just start from the scratch okay so there was a a big thing happened in the 90s that kind of changed everything for us right and so Take us through kind of the history of the abdominal wall, like where this all started and where all the confusion began. And then uh, we'll kind of talk about maybe
1: like DNS's perspective and then our our perspective. Yeah, I think that, you know, we've everyone has used the term and struggled with the term uh, core stabilization. So, you know, we've we've all known that the, the muscles of the abdominal wall have been important, you know, for for a long time. Uh, there was some seminal papers that came out in the early 1990s, as far as the timing of activation, Paul Hodges, Carolyn Richardson, Sapsford, uh, they were some early contributors to kind of say that there was a motor control problem with people that, you know, are having, you know, chronic low back pain. So that, that first paper, I think that came out in 1996, uh, uh, that was from the Australian group, I think that one really opened people's eyes to understand the timing of the activation of this interview, inner unit is really important. And then for those of you who heard me talk about this before, and then we've had um, from Waterloo, Dr. Stu McGill had such a huge contribution, I think, on, you know, the understanding of, you know, multiple muscle function and uh, core stabilization, bracing You know, these ideas that weren't really being talked about before. And then, of course, we're all homers for DNS. And then, uh, Pavel Kolosh's huge contribution was uh, if you look in the, in the, the research you will see that you know Paul Hodges, uh, amongst others, was talking about the importance of diaphragm function and abdominal pressure. But I think uh, Pavel was definitely the first person in the world to start you know talking about the importance of the diaphragm as a postural stabilizer, not just a muscle for respiration. And he w- went on to talk about its importance and sphincter function too. But I think that was probably you know the the three probably most important players in the abdominal wall. And uh, and and we when we teach we use all of their names to kind of talk about like different moments of function and things like that so there's been a lot of misconceptions and I really feel like you know what we're what we're talking about what we're teaching now I, I really do feel like it's it's right you know and what we continue to get better at is our ability to convey this to the patient which is never easy still to this point it's still not the easiest thing in the world for us to do and uh, so we get, continue to use technology we get better with our with our imagery and our education with the patient therefore we're getting better kind of explaining what this actually means. And I think like one of the big things for the manual therapist out there is that, if these muscles are not being used correctly, they will manifest themselves through joint blockage, tension, tone, and trigger points. So, you know, it's, you know, the entities that people are working on the manual therapy. A lot of times, the root cause of that problem, especially if we're talking about the thoracolumbar junction or the lumbosacral segments, is because the central nervous system is not modulating or regulating the muscles well around that area. Therefore, the culminating effect of this lack of tensegrity, if you will, ends up being a blockage of the joints. So, you know, our model is always, you know, we, we palpate joints that are stiff and we mobilize them and we, of course, manipulate them, but then always trying to figure out, you know, what is the etiology of that joint blockage or stiffness. And when we're talking about this area of the body, that is one of the main culprits for joint blockage and soft tissue dysfunction around the thoracolumbar junction of the pelvis.
0: Yeah, it's cool. perfect. And I think like, uh, you know, talking about that first paper uh, that Hodges talked about, you talked about the coordination, but he also pointed out that there's a delay in the activation of a single muscle that that kind of is where we went down this kind of weird transition of obviously we need to strengthen the transverse abdominis, but maybe not in the way that he originally talked about it
1: well i mean i think and i mean that's still probably up for debate we definitely have our opinion at Mm -hmm. dns and uh so and I mean, Paul Hodges, Stu McGill. These are these guys are so referenced. I mean, it's just it's just insane when we when you look at their CVs. Um, I've been lucky enough to be on the same stages with them, so I've heard you know both their sides of the story on on different things. And um, I think you know a, cu- a couple things. One thing that I think like we we teach at DNS, which I I, I personally think is right, is you know the difference between what what we call intra-abdominal pressure and an isometric brace. So that sounds so easy. Everyone's like, oh, I know what the difference is. But rarely do people actually do a good job of understanding what that key fundamental difference is. And for those of you who've seen us present before, we always, you know, I always show that. Um, the diagnostic ultrasound showing the difference of what's happening in the abdominal wall between an abdominal isometric brace and when we create the intraabdominal eccentric pushing out of the muscles. So the big fundamental difference between those two things is that intraabdominal pressure, when generated the uh, the right way does not lock our rib cage to our pelvis and does not create tension and tightness throughout our uh, our extremities or the muscles in our extremities. That is a vitally important point because obviously if we're walking, we're walking in a contralateral pattern or if we're swinging a golf club where our shoulders are rotating faster and further than our pelvis, it stands to reason that we can't lock our rib cage to our pelvis. We know that's not what happens. so. That bracing mechanism, we do this, that absolutely locks your rib cage to your pelvis. We use. There's a time when we do do that. There's a time when we use that when we're at impact in our sporting events, when we're, for example, using a deadlift, or basically when we're needing like maximum stabilization. So I think being able to explain to the patient the difference between those two is really important because if you think about the average patient, the average patient, I mean, they could go days of their life without needing an isometric brace. But they're going to need intra pressure every single time that they're, you know, moving their limbs up in space. And the, the most common problem that we see isn't that they're walking around crazily braced. It's that they have no activity there. And the one thing we've learned from the research, uh, and it was interesting. So Paul Hodges originally looked at the transverse abdominus, but then he later looked at... Uh, the diaphragm, and he also found that people with low back pain have a delay in the activation of the diaphragm. Also, so when we talk about that inner inner unit of muscles, that inner canister that you know we we all know, um, that is the unit that we're talking about. And if you look at the the spinal mechanics, there's really There's no muscle in the front of the lumbar spine directly to create stabilization. So you're basically left with, you know, this uh, inner unit uh, tube, if you will, or ball of stabilization that is basically generating forces from the front or ventral uh, side of the spine. And that is what balances the activity in muscles like erector spinae. So, um, you know, if you look at the research on chronic low back pain or back pain in general, there's 20 papers to show that you will have an upregulation of tension and tone in the erector spinae. So one of, I think the most, the most powerful way to change tone in the erector spinae is better activation or utilization of intraabdominal pressure. I mean, that is 100%. That's not a proven fact, but I mean, I'll just say, say from our experience, you know, you could dry needle, you can manipulate, you can soft tissue, you can, you can grasp and you can do it all. But the quickest way to change the tone in their erector spine muscle is better training of intra-abdominal pressure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we do an exercise one or a DNSA course, we spend a significant amount of time. And in the beginning, I know when everyone's kind of looking through their notes and their first thought is probably, Oh, I already know this. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I've learned and the people that have been around, you know, me the last five years will, will realize this like really spending the time to teach this well, I think is so critically important because really you can kind of think of, you know, if if the activation of the abdominal wall is not right, then really it's an explanation for why there can be tension and tone throughout the body. And, you know, we've learned through... Um, definitely, Stecco, Andre Fleming's work. Tom Myers has talked about it. That you know, we're basically connected. If you if you looked at the bottom of your foot, so you have your plantar fascia, your gastroc, your bicep for it, femoris, your sacro tuberous ligament, your rectus spinae, your deep portion of your multifidus, your uh, semi spinous capitis, your occipital frontalis. You're basically the backside of our body is literally connected from our from our uh, eyebrow to our feet, basically. So if we have up upregulation and tension and tone in our rectus spinae. technically, we could, you know, have more um, tone being spread out through our body. So that is like, you can really, I mean, um, it's really kind of exciting, honestly, to think of like the changes that you can make throughout the body by just doing a really, really good job of teaching our patients this. And, you know, to keep it simple for me, um, and, and you, well, I mean, you're part of this here. You know, we kind of divide it up. I mean, we, I look at the abdominal wall. There's three things the abdominal wall basically needs to do. We need to be able to respire well. So day one with a with a patient um, that we're teaching us to. We teach them what exactly respiration means. You're not up moving your body right now. You don't actually need to be generating eccentric intra-abdominal pressure. You don't need a brace. Right now, we just need the right respiration stereotype. Okay, you're going to move your body now. Now we need to train the intra-abdominal pressure mechanism. Uh, And then the third and final uh, thing would be like uh, the isometric brace. And, you know, So sometimes we do teach that. So the one downside we know through like Granada and Marasa's research is that the abdominal brace from an architectural standpoint or engineering standpoint, absolutely will stiffen the spine and uh, create stabilization, but it comes at a cost of compression. So this is where to me, it's just one of the architectural marvels of the body where, you know, if you're creating a brace, obviously we're compressing our lumbar spine. If we're generating the right intra-abdominal pressure, we actually are decompressing our lumbar spine vertebrae. It's like the most perfect complement, you know, it's just one of the most amazing things of the body and what this means for all of us if you look at your image finding you know if you're looking at a plain view x-ray if you look at a lateral x-ray you may see like in the thoracolumbar junction you might see geodes in plane irregularity um, mode type one and type two modic changes on an mri you might see spondylolisthesis these are all basically the mri mri report or x-ray reports screaming at you that I am not attenuating compression well. So that that in itself, even if you never even looked at the patient, but you're seeing all these findings, especially in a middle-aged patient, you basically know that they have incorrect force utilization of the muscles around the spine. So, uh, I mean, I think that would be a green light to start with intramural pressure. Now, it's kind of like, so the question everybody always asks is, well, do we start every single patient there? And, you know, we're we're also McKinzoid. So, I mean, like if somebody comes in with, you know, discogenic pain, things like that, we're definitely like search and destroy the arrangement until they're to a certain point where they're uh, centralized and abolished. However, like in that transition, we are then, you know, moving them out of the MDT hospital and moving them into the DNS hospital. And in uh, that, if you can imagine a Venn diagram like that, overlap. Uh, It's kind of a beautiful thing how we, you know, we always talk about integration and how we're able to kind of move one patient to a different stage and, and we do we do that a lot but I think that um, it's like if you were a functional medicine practitioner and you said, well, would you be wrong to start every patient with the gut. Probably not. I mean, because there's so, I mean, you could argue the, you know, that gut dysbiosis is the start of, you know, so many different things. Um, Does that mean that every single case? No, of course not. But I mean, like, if you're young, and you're not sure where to start, that would be a decent start, you know. Uh, So I mean, so those three things, I think, is a good little takeaway. Where you know, with your wound, you're with a new patient. Think of it and divide it up for them so they can you know learn it well. Mm-hmm. I, what I've learned is people are so confused right now when they're talking about you know generation of intramural pressure versus bracing mm-hmm. uh, versus respiration. Like they just are confusing these terms, and it's really confusing for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then the one thing that you know this this would be a uh, a huge clinical pearl here. That the patients are just god awful at is being able to separate respiration from intra pressure. So it's, it's a, you know, when patients are starting to learn, it becomes kind of easy for them to, like when they're taking air in because the diaphragm's already being pushed down by the, the lungs filling up with the air. So it's, it's easier for them to feel it there, but when they let their air out, it's so common for them to then lose their stabilization and their pressure. And if you think about it, it makes zero sense. You're not going to be out on a, uh, running around on a soccer field and the only time that you're stabilized is when you're bringing air into your lungs. It doesn't right. make any sense. But uh, in any given moment of your, of your life, you basically have three things when you're up on your feet that your, your central nervous system's having to reconcile. That is stabilization, respiration, incontinence. And this is a very delicate little fragile situation. So in any given moment, one of those three legs of the stool can give way. So like if you're, for example, if you're a triathlete and you're, you're fatigued and you're tired, obviously it's more primal to get air in your lungs to stabilize your spine. So then... Um, in an attempt to keep, you know, getting air into the system, you have now compromised the stabilization component. Or I always joke, if you, you know, if you sit on a finish line of a marathon, there will be somebody who shits her pants at the finish line, and uh, or pees her pants, or whatever it might be. And that, that is a good example of the system's so fatigued that at that point, they've lost control of their uh, pelvic floor musculature. Therefore, they've, they can't maintain continence. So, um, you know, being able to work through all these different three, com- these three critical components of the abdominal wall sounds so easy as we're talking about it, but as everyone has learned in our patients, it becomes a little bit challenging. Now, we're a little bit different here in that like a lot of people think that, you know, we want to start respiration training or intraabdominal pressure training from a seated position. I or I'm sorry from a supine position, 90-90. We do not do that. We start from a seated position because I think it's easier for the patient to feel. Uh usually they're seated throughout their day on their commute. So it just becomes mm-hmm. a real important part. And uh and I would say pro tip number two would be, you know, the other really common mistake is, you know, people are our patients aren't very good at modulating. Pressure to whatever the activity is that they're doing. So if you've ever been to an exercise one or DNSA course, the first day when we're in a three-month supine position, everybody is activating with way too much intra. They're getting dizzy. They're shaking, yeah. yeah, they're sweating. And yeah. so then, but we, I, my personal belief is that is actually okay for that to to be that way because in the beginning we've disturbed it so much that. Now you got to go back, and you have to actually cortically think about it. That means you know you have to use your brain to actually change that uh, ability of uh, the abdominal wall to function that way. And then what we're hoping is it becomes subconscious, subcortical this neurologic feed forward mechanism that if I'm gonna go open that door right now, this inner unit should activate just like we see it activate in the 10 month old baby that is starting to pull up on a piece of furniture. And if you if you watch, you know, in DNS we show the videos of the babies moving. If you watch babies as they're developing, you will see before they move any segment of their body, it, it, as long as they're, you know, over three months of age, you will see them generate intra-abdominal pressure first, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense because they're basically securing their lumbar spine now they have these muscles in our extremities and around our spine to be able to pull from and if you think about it it just makes perfect sense so this whole this whole unit basically starts at six weeks as far as the development of course you can use your diaphragm for respiration for you know right the first day that you take your first breath and then um Starting in about six weeks, we're able to start to use our, our diaphragm as a postural stabilizer, three months of process is well on its way, and then it should be completely finished at six months of age, which matches up perfectly to the milestone of turning from a supine to prone position. Uh, and if you think about it again, it, it just it's uh, an architectural marvel. You first stabilize your rib cage to your pelvis. Now you're able to use these anterior and posterior oblique slings to be able to turn us. So... You know, how does this go wrong? I think is where, you know, I I would say the critics at DNS, you know, because they think we're, you know, too meticulous with our observation and our treatment. But um, the reason we find it dysfunctional in so many people is because either you've been injured, Mm -hmm. so you've hurt your back, let's just say. Now you have a protective pattern, real common after anything like discogenic pathology. So now your central nervous system is upregulating muscles around that area for protection. So now that you've somewhat healed yourself and you're kind of making your way back from, the, um, from that injury, sometimes you'll hang on to that protective pattern. Um, that's one way. Uh, we also have um, you know society always telling us to hold our stomach in. And that is that is probably our biggest barrier to everything that we're talking about. So the patient's... One, because of vanity, they don't like the way their abdominal looks when it's, you know, being uh, relaxed or pushed out Uh, or they've simply been told to do it the other way. So, like, you have to come with a shit ton of certainty to really get somebody because you are you're up against 20 years of them thinking it one way so i mean you've got to do a really bang up job of education to be able to get this the way that we want um and then maybe the uh the third and final way would be just uh improper training you know just you know teaching our patients the wrong activation when they're doing something that could be gymnastics that could be in the gym that could be uh in yoga whatever it might be so um but anyways, th- those are the reasons it gets awry. Because yeah. everyone always asks that, well, does everybody need this? And the answer is kind of yes. But I mean, you'll find that like you're really good athletes, like they kind of know how to do this already. That's like there's just one of their gifts to the world. Um, and then the other people need to be shown how to do it. And then the other people are just injured because they may be a great athlete, but the forces are just too high and those forces are destroying their, their joints and their spine.
0: Yeah, I think you made some good points too, like this inner unit that we talked about, you know, we, we talk about the muscles, the internal, external, oblique, the transverse, the abdominis, but there's also a top and the bottom. We talk about the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. You know, now if you open up Instagram, how many people you see, have you ever seen come across those videos? It's a female powerlifter and she just <laughs> literally loses all control of her bladder. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's almost like a rite of passage, you know, which is, uh, you know, we're going to have a conversation with Lindsay and we've talked to Lindsay and Erica, Lindsay Boomer and Erica Bolin about this topic of pelvic floor dysfunction kind of starts. I, I feel a lot of the time, from the top bottom you know it's it's uh no different than our back low back cases or things like that it's just a another entry point into respiration abdominal training
1: yeah i think so and i mean i think like <clears throat> the pelvic floor uh i forget wh- what i was having to do it might have been that last gate seminar I, I like had to dive into it pretty heavily again and uh the pelvic floor is the research on it's insane. Like, so, I mean, there's tonic activity in the pelvic floor throughout the whole activity in walking. So there will be like little bursts of activity, like at heel strike and toe off and things like that. But there is consistent activity in a normal functioning system. So you're never really, like, if you're, you know, up and about moving your body, these muscles are never, like, shut off. You know, like, there's always going to be uh, activation there in this inner unit. This inner unit, and I think this is where... Uh, Sapsford and some of those authors in the early 1900s that I always talk about, uh, not early 1900s, 1990s, mm-hmm. they they really exposed the fact of like the connection between like transverse abdominus and pelvic floor and like how there really isn't really a separation between that. And I think uh, Dr. Stu McGill and and those also did a really good job of kind of. And I always tell, give Stu a ton of credit, you know, like in a time when, you know, everybody and myself included, I can't believe I haven't talked about this yet. When I was young, we were telling our patients, which I just cannot believe I'm even talking about this, to before you move your body, suck your stomach in, to activate your transverse abdominus, uh, Kegel, and then swell your multifidus. Like you could take your intersegmental muscles and, you know, individually fire off those things. So where I think... Um, where i think you know Stu was the voice of reason at the time is just that you know these muscle multiple muscles act and you know when, when you're working with really strong people and things like that nobody is just actively choosing to uh to bring their stomach their their abdominal wall inward and we always do this or i do this when i'm teaching at dns seminars we make the patients actually suck their stomach in and give us the wrong position between the rib cage and the pelvis and then we show them how much weaker they become when we do that that's a really good learning moment for the Uh, for the students, I think.
0: For sure. I think another, like, uh, you know, a rock that gets cast at DNS is like, well, you can't change respiration or you can't teach people how to respire correctly and and things like that, which is, to me, it's kind of a, a null point, but it brings up the point of, these people that were, were trying to change these patterns are like you said, they're there for a reason, you know, like these patterns are so disturbed because of a reason. It's not like they just randomly show up one day and have improper respiration and stuff. It's there's usually some sort of trauma or some sort of path that got them there. And so getting them to understand it cortically is what hopefully like almost, I always think of it like a reset, you know, like it, I think about my high school kids that maybe have a spondylolis that have sucked their stomach in or their coach has been telling them to do crunches for the last year Sometimes you just need something to reset the
1: system for the body. Just be like, oh, crap. Like, yeah, I need to go back to doing this how it's supposed to. Yeah, because that, yeah, it's a great point. Because really, mm-hmm. you're not doing something artificial with DNS. No. You're you're going back to the original way, the way that it was. Right. And for the four reasons we mentioned before, it, that's why it's so disturbed on people. So you have to, and that's why we even let the patients. They're going to activate too much intra-abdominal pressure in the beginning when they're starting to learn how to move their body with this uh, with this correct stabilization. And then the brain is so amazing. like It just learns to kind of regulate and modulate to what it needs to. I always tell a story about myself, for those of you who do manipulation, where um, this was not that long ago. This was probably five years ago, where the uh, the radiologist from Logan came out to the office here, and they had ultrasound probes on me. And I know because of fei and Terry and others and mark they they taught me when we, you know I was learning you wanna like cough thrust like no. like when you're learning how to impulse, so basically you're like, yeah. So, um, so I thought as I was moving along that, you know, that would kind of be what I would still see. I knew I wasn't like, yeah, I wasn't doing a massive Kia, but, um, I thought that my abdominal wall would be isometrically tensing and it actually wasn't. So what it was doing was I was just showing like intra-abdominal pressure basically. And so I thought about it for a second. I'm like, that's interesting. I was like, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense. Like once you learn how to do a motor skill or an activity well, your central nervous system would never recruit more than it actually needs for that activity for a whole multitude of different reasons you know um so the brain's too smart for that so so I think in the uh, the topic that we're talking about, like the the brain then eventually learns how to modulate it to what it needs to be, you know. And I mean, for everybody, this is, this is uh, takes a lot of it. I mean, we always go through the the kingery steps of of learning or whatever as far as um, being unconsciously competent, and then hopefully finishing with by being um, consciously competent right. or unconsciously competent, which basically means like your brain is just regulating the right activation. You know, you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. And that process can be anywhere from literally this hour to a six-week period in a Medicare patient, geriatric patient, who is just so far gone that it takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Thankfully too, I mean, a lot of times like just getting the process started a little bit goes a long way. So like in your patients, maybe you never get it to 100% perfection, but if you get it to be 70 percent better it's it's enough like you can imagine how powerful this is for spinal stenosis where we get the right forces in the front of the back you know that's right so i mean so i I would say don't be handicapped by perfection on this you got to get the ball started somewhere and i think too what you're gonna find like some people will just literally blow your mind you'll be like wow that is insanely good so and like today we had a patient here um that you know is uh I've been working with them for probably two or three weeks and um really learning well. Like if if we did the intra abdominal pressure test, I mean just absolutely amazing job. Great respiration. So there's this there's this uh, group of patients that they know how to do it well. They're just not doing it. And she kind of fell in that category where, I mean, like, as far as the tests, everything felt good. But just because they can doesn't mean they will. So, you know, we then have to explain to them what this actually means in their life when they're um, when they're lifting weights or when they're swinging a baseball bat. And I think that's like... The best clinicians in the world they do a really good job of um creating imagery outside of the treatment room maybe even outside of the strength conditioning area and then like in their actual life and sport of like what this actually means for them um, when they're you know pitching or or hitting or whatever the example might be and it it just and the other thing too it just it stands to reason it would make you more athletic because you're stabilizing yourself in the correct way yeah so, I mean, the hard part would be definitely for our you know, and i'm we're in those the evidence based world like so. You know, I mean, I, I know what people are saying, like, well, so many of our patients, they just, we we don't want to, like, meticulously change this. I, I get that argument. I really do. But I think, like, when it comes to the function of the abdominal wall, sometimes we do need to do some real specific things early on so their brain understands these differences. Because if you're too lousy, fair, and sloppy with it, then they don't take anything away from it. And it just, it mm-hmm. doesn't do anything, you know. So, um I think you know, back to, you know, the three things that we teach them, how to breathe well, how to generate intra-abdominal pressure for low-level activities. And if they need the brace, then we can definitely, and that's like the the final phase of our spondyl uh, treatment here, where they're basically creating a brace with intra-abdominal pressure and uh, learning how to attenuate those forces well through their their, through their back. So,
0: And if you think about it too, like the anatomy makes sense, you know, the picture i always show we have a, i have a big anatomy picture in my treatment room with like the front cut out so like all the internal organs and intestines out and then the, you can see where the hip flexors actually come down the iliopsoas the iliacus things like that like if you don't have anything for them to push against or the pressure to be right then how can you expect yourself to explode your hip off of your lumbar spine right you know this is like easy just imagery for for soccer players the other one uh that i've kind of stolen from you too is like uh you never you never see a weightlifter suck their stomach in which you kind of the like Stu McGill talked about that too. But what, what are some of the other ways that you use imagery in the treatment room or what are some other examples or things that you tell people? I mean, people? I think like,
1: you know, like I what I always do is just throw out random sports just to get people thinking, especially in a seminar format. So I mean I'll we don't have a bunch of swimmers here, but uh like swimming, you know, like I always talk about butterflies. So what a lot of people don't know about swimming, the second most common injury for a high level swimmer, number one's, of course, shoulder number two is low back pain. And the reason is because you're taking a muscle like latissimus dorsi. And when you're doing a butterfly stroke, you're basically ballistically exploding the lat against your spine. So the lat is a humeral adductor, extender and internal rotator. So, but on the other end, it's a potent lumbar spine extender. So real quickly, if you took the swimmer example, and if you can imagine like a butterfly or butterflying like uh, in front of you, their body is basically worming through the water Mm -hmm. in the sagittal plane. So it makes perfect sense. You can't abdominally brace yourself there because you wouldn't be able to do the motion that occurs to your body there. So what you need is you need intra-abdominal pressure in the pool. So I would start with, you know, some kind of biofeedback, uh, like maybe even a Theraband or Core360 belt in the pool. Subtle plug there for our sponsor, Core360 belt. And then, yeah, and then... Then you could even like take that on the lamb base exercise where you could you could honestly, as crazy as it sounds, get on a lat pull machine and like teach the brain how to first stabilize through intra abdominal pressure, and then you have a stable platform for your lats to pull up. The analogy I always use to directly answer your question is: Would you rather shoot a cannon off a canoe or uh, you know a concrete floor? So basically, when we're talking about muscle functions throughout the body, we're always basically needing to stabilize the most proximal segment, especially if we're talking about the open chain. So, you know, we need, like you use the example, the hip flexor. Well, if I want to be the best kicker on Sundays and I'm, you know, kicking off from the 50 yard line, I need to explode my iliopsoas off of this intra-abdominal pressure mechanism. So that is one of the things that like makes athletes great is being able to support themselves in the right way so different than like pitchers like if you don't have
0: the ability to extend or to lengthen under tension your anterior oblique sling it's very hard to then explode your anterior oblique sling right. so if you don't have anything underneath of that Sling those slings, and it's it's just impossible. That's why they're the best, and we suck because we don't have that ability to then lengthen and ex, uh, then explode those uh,
1: those muscles. and I mean, said real simply, with without pressure, you don't have tension. So like if you look at that bird's eye view that I always show from uh, Dr. Paul Hodges, You can clearly see the intimate relationship with muscles like transverse abdominis and internal oblique with the thoracodorsal fascia. So, the thoracodorsal fascia, the superficial portion, comes around, sneaks onto the uh, spinous processes of the lumbar spine. So, like that, that outward pushing of pressure is what's generating tension in the thoracodrosal fascia. Therefore, as it hooks around to the back of the lumbar spine vertebrae, it's actually creating stiffness and stabilization. It will blow your mind. When you see that picture and you actually know what's going on there, you're like I mean this is just insane yeah. like how how clever and smart it is you it's know? an architectural dream I mean yeah. it
0: literally is it's so amazing what about uh, uh one thing we really haven't talked about and it's one of uh, the things that we talk about behind closed doors a lot is this uh there's this big push now in in sports of athletic pubalgia, sports hernias hernias how much do you feel uh, personally how much does tension play into that?
1: diagnosis i think that um it's it's kind of it's a little bit of a tricky question because it is potentially lack of tension the other problem is it, it would be like uh tension that's not distributed in the right, right. way that's kind you of how i was getting
0: that yeah yeah too much yeah. upregulation of the maybe the anterior portion of the abdominal wall or something along those lines like do you feel like that is the answer or maybe the the why behind some of these
1: I think like, I mean, if we take our uh, our family of hernias, one thing you'll see across the board, they all a lot of times they'll have like a soft tissue. Uh- matrix problems, like just from an overall soft tissue problem. Um, So you have that kind of working against them. And then, yeah, but then I, I, yeah, I think this, this intra-abdominal pressure mechanism is, I mean, if you're looking at a pie chart, let's call it 90% of the problem, you know, and that's why you see these patients just continue to get plagued with other forms of hernias, hernias on the other side. Like, you know, a lot of times they never really fix their problem simply because they've never been taught like the, the right activation after their surgery. Right. So and I think like even in like if we talk about diastasis recti in like a 6-year-old male patient it's it's wrong to say that they can't they're not creating intraabdominal pressure they're creating intraabdominal pressure like like this you know forward here mm-hmm. so like here's your diaphragm here's your pelvic floor so instead of this Nice, you know, up and down movement of these two structures. Instead, you have the, you know, pushing forward. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you... I Almost mean, like after, an obliqueness
0: of yeah. the pelvic floor and the diaphragm.
1: Which, I mean, that's what I... You know, if you have a balloon laying around or you have like a, some kind of ball that's pliable, you can like easily show the patient like what this actually looks like. And, and they, they really do, you know, grab onto it. So mm-hmm. um, the other thing would be on that just to, to remember is thoracic mobility plays such a critical role in getting your respiratory diaphragm in the right position. Position. So a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, your, your older patients, that's something to not forget about is they can be, they can get perfect at inch abdominal pressure and they're still showing you this big old diastasis because they have such stiff segments in their thoracic spine. And that's really why you don't really see diastasis recti as much in the younger patient outside of the postpartum patients. And the reason is because you're not dealing with such stiffness throughout the uh, thoracic spine and rib cage. That's right. One thing too, I, I
0: think uh, maybe to just dispel a rumor, not a rumor, but just to, to kind of right the ship is something I hear from, uh, like if we get someone that's referred from a pelvic floor PT or maybe uh, people that just, not even PTs, Kairos, people that understand this mechanism, they say uh, too much intra pressure is actually detrimental to pelvic floor dysfunction because it's too much pressure in the abdomen and you're creating too much stuff. But again, like we've kind of talked about that. I just want to like put that out there that We're not talking about creating this big old, like, you're walking around with so much pressure in your abdominal wall, you can't move, you can't function. We're talking about this delicate system of creating pressure that increases and decreases depending on your imposed demand.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's like, you know, people like they cherry pick like they do and they hear one thing and they they make it something that's not. I think that's a really good point because the patients who are not good at intraabdominal pressure usually they're doing some form of a brace so um intraabdominal pressure in itself is a confusing term because I always show that one slide where, you know, the 1960s, they're basically defining intra-abdominal pressure as closing the glottis, creating like basically a brace. So uh, yeah, Bal-salva. So like you can see why everybody is so confused on this, including every, you know, the people that are in the business and the stakeholders, if you will. So anyways, I think that's where, um, you know, the, the people get, there's a misunderstanding because the lexicon is so kind of confusing in a way. And I honestly, I think you've heard me say before, Taylor, like I don't love the term intra-abdominal pressure myself for a lot of different reasons. One of them is that... Intraabdominal pressure leaves you thinking that this is just a gaseous force that is creating the stabilization. And um, we know through DNS and, and others, I mean, collage has definitely exposed this over the years, but others have talked about it, that like when your diaphragm drops down, you also have a mechanical pressure against your internal organs. So it's not just perfect isotropic you know, gaseous Boyle's law where you have this perfect pressurization, like you'd learned in your chemistry class. Um, The anatomy is just kind of different, you know, and I think also people, you know, if you look at the anatomy, and you see this intra-abdominal pressure mechanism in the front of the spine, and in DNS, we teach being able to respire and generate pressure like posteriorly. So then people in their mind they think it's going to feel exactly the same in the back as it is in the front. I mean, it's in the, look at the picture. It's not going to feel the same. You know, you're you're in the back, you have erector spinae, you have the latch, you have these muscles that are like, you know, preventing you from feeling it as easily. So it's not going to feel exactly the same, but it's not a bad thought to think of like a lot of our patients need to learn how to either get their pressure forward laterally or backwards and then maybe mo- uh, just as important would be the depth so getting the pressure mm-hmm. really low into their pelvis and that's the thing you're going to find like as your patients are learning they'll learn really well above their belly button mm-hmm. like they and then like the as they as they start to mature and they get you know they get better at this then below the belly button you'll start to see better generation of pressure as they get better at this and that's uh that's what we're looking for and that's all exposed in all the the dns courses and again i mean maybe i'm wrong but like to me collage was the first one from the clinical side of things that was just like telling the world this and uh uh to his credit early on i don't think many people were listening and now i mean i think everybody everybody agrees that it's the right right thing i think maybe the last uh uh the last
0: Voices, or I guess, outside voices that I had in my head of something to disprove, not necessarily disprove, I keep using that word, but to, to talk about would be uh, you can cast stones that, uh, well, DNS, they don't appreciate rib function or they don't appreciate rib motion during respiration. So uh, I know that, you know, you and I have had side conversations about this and stuff, but. Uh, To me, like when respiration is correct with diaphragm, the way that we teach it with intra pressure, you're still getting expansion and closure of the ribs intersegmentally. It's maybe just not uh, to the extent of like if you're perpetuating rib movement with respiration.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I would I would stauntly uh, argue that, you know, when when you're respiring in the right way with normal tidal breathing, you're basically getting natural motion through the cost of transverse joints, the cost of for joints, the thoracic facet joints, the um, we always teach at DNS. So if, if this is your sternum here, so your sternum is moving, therefore you have relative motion at your SC joint, basically. Mm-hmm. So your clavicle shouldn't be moving with normal tidal breathing. So what's happening basically is your sternum's moving like we all learned it from Kapanji, like a pump handle. Yeah, like A to P. A to P, and then not superior movement. Really, I mean, a pretty good rule of thumb is, like, I mean, if you're doing a resp- respiratory examination on your patient, you really do not want to see any superior migration of the thoracic spine now you're all used to seeing like textbooks where you you know you're used to seeing this gross dysfunction but like this is where there is a little bit of a subtlety i always just watch the ac joints that way i'm never fooled and uh when when people are respiring correctly you you literally will not see any movement here and the abdominal wall at this point basically should be thought of as like a balloon so um and i mean th- oh, so i would i would want to comment on this too because another common confusion is like as your patients are starting to understand this when they're respiring correctly, the abdominal wall is being pushed out by the air that's underneath it. It's like if you were blowing up a balloon, the skin of the balloon is being pushed outward by the air underneath it that's pushing it out. When we go to train this intra-abdominal pressure that we teach at DNS, we're basically teaching their brain to be able to push their muscles out. And this is still, we're still different than an isometric brace at this point, you know? So this is, yeah, I mean, I remember early on, like, is I in the story that I always tell Taylor is just out of my own embarrassment was that um, I had a a patient. I always call her Nancy because all my difficult patients are called Nancy. But uh, she I got done teaching her abdominal brace and then she gets up and she was simply asking. So then she asked me, she's like, well, does this mean I should walk around with this with this brace on and in a moment of just desperation, I basically literally said, Nancy, I don't effing know myself, honestly. Like I just was, it's just such a pathetic point of the knowledge of it. And I think that's really what put me on my crusade for trying to like do a better job of kind of figuring this out. Um, And then that's where I really do feel like I'm the luckiest person on the world as far as this topic just because I just, you know, I just had everyone at the right time come in my life. That way we can, you know, have difficult conversations with each other. And, uh, at the end of the day, we always have a beer and I think everybody can, you know, somewhat agree and we may not be exactly the same, but, um, again, I mean, to me, the, the most important people in this world are, uh, you know, Stu McGill, uh, Paul Hodges, uh, Collage, uh, I'm missing other, Colwicky. Um, yeah, I think like these, uh, people have just had enormous contributions. And uh, Punjabi would be another one. I mean, his model, the spine, is exactly right. Uh, so yeah, and I think then that doesn't negate the fact that we know the chronic pain sciences, you know. And I think Paul Hodges actually does a really good job of explaining that, um, you know, when you have, uh, you know, no C plastic pain or central sensitization, whatever we're calling it now, like you have to respect that, you know, like but you know, like there's two ways to get in the chronic pain hospital. Either you have, maybe you have multiple autoimmune diseases. Maybe you have, you know, fear avoidance issues. Maybe you have anxiety about your problems. Maybe you were unfortunately abused. That's one way. And we all know that patient, but then the other way is you just have had shitty care. Like, I mean, you just haven't been lucky enough to see like people like our listeners basically. So um, you know, so you got to give people a chance. I mean, you, yeah. If you want to head down that route with, you know, the chronic pain, uh, we would highly recommend you go for it. But I think like, you got to start on the mechanical side also. So, yeah. and, or at least not ignore the mechanical side. Yeah. And why the hell can you not do both? Yeah. That's what I just do not understand. Like what well, everything in the world is so binary now, but like, okay. it's like, oh, either you're in the chronic pain camp or you're, in the musculoskeletal camp. Like, it's like, you can actually play in both sand pits. And to me, the best clinicians in the world, they do that. Like, they're able to dance in and out of, I mean, all day long, you're walking in and out of treatment rooms and, you know, you get you walk in, you got to make a decision, you know, do I need to change this patient's diet? Do they need a pep talk on movement? Um, do I just need to put them on a walking program? Do I need to get really specific with abdominal pressure? And I mean, that just goes without saying. I mean, it, it's almost offensive that we even have to talk about that yeah. because it just, it, it's, it, it's so it. obvious. Yeah. Exactly. But that's the world we live in. Well, that's kind of why I
0: put us under uh, Dr. Levitt here today. I thought, you know, it it all kind of started early on, I mean, Yanda was talking about the intersegmental muscles and how important it was to train them back when he didn't have the research to kind of support it. And then Hodges came around and kind of talked about that and now we're kind of on the continuum where, you know, from the Prague School to now all these awesome researchers now, you know, things are things are coming out more and I think the Prague School has some amazing ideas and they have some studies in place right now that are going to hopefully give us a little bit better insight into the why. I don't think it's going to change how we teach it or how, uh, you know, we, we do it in the treatment room necessarily but it's definitely going to give us a little bit more ammo on the why, why we're doing the things we're doing in those types of things. Well,
1: I think too, I mean, whenever, you know, you know, cause you get asked difficult questions, obviously there's, you know, a difficult person in every room that you're going to teach in. <laughs> so you're forced to kind of think about, you know, what you were just talking about. And I mean, one thing at DNS, I always bring it back to, I try to expose the research that we've done, mm-hmm. but then it's always, if you can buy into the fact that, The normal physiologic developing baby at that time, everything is so neurologically pure. Therefore, in that you know, if we're we're palpating that baby's joints, perfect joint play, the soft tissues are perfect. There's no trigger points. There's no tension. There's no tone. There's no uh, fibrosis in the soft tissues. So because the brain is so perfectly using all the muscles, we then disturb it. So if you think about it, you can almost reverse engineer this with your patients where you're almost like, you're not going to do this exactly, but I think this is a really healthy way to think about it. You're basically wanting to return that patient's body, if you will, back to that original state where there are no joint blockages, where there are no trigger points, you know? And I mean, if you think about it, for those of you who are working with, you know, musculoskeletal treatment, we, we have three things we can basically change on the patient. We can move joints that are stiff. Um, we can take tension out of soft tissues through the multitude of techniques that we've talked about on this podcast. Um, and then we can, you know, do a better job of teaching the brain how to activate the muscles, uh, in a concert, kind of like we're talking about now through coactivation or even in like kind of old school physical therapy and in, in isolation whatever you whatever you want to do, but like those are our three tools, you know, like so you know I mean sometimes when people want to make it difficult like with their interns, at the end of the day, can you do that you know like if you can do that like your your results are going to be respectable, you know, right. so nice. there's more to it, but I mean like that that's a pretty good little start on, but I think a really important takeaway would also be the connection between. When the stabilization is not ideal, the culminating effect ends up being trigger points in the soft tissues, muscular tone, and eventually joint blockage. So then that way, like, if you have a tool to manipulate or mobilize joints that aren't moving well, and then you can go right back and teach their brain how to better activate the muscles around it, I mean, come on, you know, like, and then like the other thing is when that patient comes back to you two days later, to actually have the joint play better. Versus like, even I'm old enough now to where like in, in the, you know, in the old joint play model, like you joint play, you adjust, the patient comes back. And I mean, a lot of times things are kind of the same, you know? So like to have a tool that like allows you to continue to be working on, um, you know, getting, getting lasting change, which is always our goal. That doesn't mean we're going to do it in one or two visits, but um, you know, that's always our our goal. And I mean, that's, you know, we're functionalists. Everyone on this podcast is, you know, we we believe in changing function and to do that. It's going to take a little bit of time and it's definitely going to take some education. Beautiful. Good job. Thanks for talking about it.
0: This is, I mean, it's, it's, it's so fun to talk about because I feel like you've taken the steps to gather the research and given credit to those who deserve credit and then talk about it in an open way like you do in the beginning of DNS courses. And so I'm, I'm lucky cause I get to hear that I'll get to hear that this weekend in Raleigh. But, uh, also like, uh, there's just always a, you have a great stabilization lecture that kind of goes along with everything. And so, uh, yeah, I, I I always get excited hearing about it. it. Reinvigorates me to talk to my patients about it more, especially in my cases that aren't like a low back case or, you know, something like that. Like seeing the changes that you can make peripherally through central stability. And I think that that's something that McGill's talked about. That's something that's a staple in the Prague School. Central stability for distal mobility. You know, like you work on the stability, of the joints that are moving and uh, the rest is kind of history. So. I think
1: too, just like a closing thought, there was no... Um, you know, that, that research I always talk about with the the tennis players, you know, like on the forehand or tennis serve. So like when the tennis players, division two and division three tennis players are allowed to grunt, they improve all metrics of a forehand and a, and a serve. Mm-hmm. So the debate isn't whether or not you should be stabilized. Obviously it's, right. it's quite apparent. Like when people right. are breaking boards, they're screaming, they're doing things that stiffen their abdominal wall. Sure. The debate that rages on between all of us is what is the quality of the stabilization is it intra-abdominal pressure how are we teaching it and that's like what we continue to refine and that's like right. to me that's what the next five to ten years look like in this research and uh yeah we, we might have some stuff going on from a research standpoint too mm-hmm. going on right now so like i i think and what we're finding out so far is everything that we're thinking yeah is exactly how it is so that's that's exciting love it uh guys we would
0: love to see you at a at a future course especially a dns course it's i mean obviously we're giant homers but we love it uh brett you also have uh parker orlando coming up not too long so you'll be out there in orlando i'm gonna be in uh dallas in july talking about ankle sprains for ftca uh i'm trying to think where else you're going next um
1: I got some California, yeah, California. Oh, yeah, that's right. California, one in Napa Valley. That'll be fun. Uh, nice, yeah. Long Beach, yeah. There's a, we got all kinds of stuff. Perfect. But,
0: so. uh, we'll stay tuned. Uh, if you're not following us on Instagram already, uh, we, we've got some good ideas, some new stuff that's coming out, and uh, keep updating on podcasts and courses. And uh, with that being said, guys, uh, good luck with patience, and uh, we'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, If you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, We really want everyone to be able to to tune in and and get the the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, For a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com. Click on courses and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.